Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Our economy has given us the ability to make more choices for ourselves uh, about how we want to live. And you might think, I don't have a lot of choices, but compare yourself to somebody living in medieval Europe or perhaps a woman who's grown up in India prior to uh, revolution. Uh, You might find that your choices are a lot less by comparison. And uh, so uh, if you know a little bit about history, you realize the choices uh, which are available to us. Social media has given people the feeling that they can be a star. Anybody can be a star and have their time in the spotlight. Um, And this has led to an epidemic of narcissism. Uh, The blessing of technology can become a curse when it becomes a master rather than a servant. And we have people who are addicted to their phones, you know. And that's a a real tragedy to live our lives with our our faces and our devices. (laughs) There are people uh, from surprising quarters that are beginning to sound the alarm about this. They they aren't necessarily within the church, as you might expect. I think we would expect that the church would raise the alarm anytime idols begin to grow. But often we sit by and take in the similar idolatry with our culture. And uh, uh, it's not so much the older generation which are in the most danger. All of this is new and fascinating in the world of, of older people. I'm finding myself more and more in that category, you know. Uh, it's it's the next generation who've never known the difference. Uh, they've never known a world in which relationships weren't mediate, mediated through devices. And I think that's sad. They've never known a world in which uh, relationships weren't mediated by devices. And we're on this we're on this cruise. Janie and I were uh, with her folks, and the table sitting next to us. Uh, I don't know how it is on all cruises, but on this one, you had you had assigned seating at dinner time and. Uh, there was this young couple from Louisiana who just gotten married, and they were sitting at the table. They were on their honeymoon on a cruise, and they were sitting at the table, and they were, were not talking to each other. They were both on their cell phones. And I thought, you know, here's a young, good-looking couple who were, you know, in the prime of their life, but their face was fastened to their devices. And I found that really, really interesting and sad I know I sound like an old fogey when I talk like this. Man, what an old fogey. If you don't know what a fogey is, that's somebody who's fussy and old-fashioned. And I probably sound like that. So I, I want you to know that I know I'm sounding like that. So I'm not. this isn't me living in yesteryear when we didn't have these things. This is saying that there are some concerns out there about what are we living life for and what, we're, what are we about. Um, the place it all goes wrong is in answering the question, what is life for? What will bring fulfillment? And I think fulfillment really comes from purpose. I think this self-obsession that we have in our culture um, takes our attention away from things that really matter. We're like narcissists starving at the pool looking into our own reflection. And there needs to be a responsible line drawn between what's useful and what's controlling. Paul says in 1 Corinthians in a few places, but... In chapter 6, he says, uh, I have the right to do anything, or all things are lawful to me. But he says, uh, he goes on to say, 
but not everything is beneficial. And I will not be mastered by anything. That's the key word. There are things which are good, but if we let them go too far, they become our masters. You understand what I mean by that? That if we let it go too far, we come under their domination. Why? Because we can't do that because we belong to the Lord. And we can't serve two masters effectively. This kind of self-love will inevitably, inevitably, there is a word out there for that, inevitably lead to self-loathing. For example, if a person doesn't get the attention they crave from their own beauty, the natural reaction is resentment. And you could see why, or a greater sense of self-doubt. They love the appearance, and I think that often will prove to be a two-edged sword. Because beauty is fleeting, and there are people that are, that are craving that, and they're trying to hang on to that as their identity. And those who live by self-image will die by self-image. This is why Christians do something different. This is why this verse uh, that we're going to look at dis- describes why we, we do what we do. And we do what we do uh, when we do it based on what Jesus did, if that makes sense. The, uh, the Corinthian church had some selfish people in it. They were selfish, and so Paul addresses them in this regard by communicating how he lives life. Because Christ has what he's done in their lives, uh, those who trust him live lives that are reframed and different. Now, we can live in the modern world. I'm not asking that we make some kind of new Luddite movement where we're fighting against every new technology, but what we have to do is we have to call the evil in it evil and the good in it good. And we have to differentiate between something being our servant and something being our master. You understand what I mean? And all of this really comes down to who it is that we love most. Because what Christ has done for, uh, done in the lives of those who trust him, we're reframed. And so the Apostle Paul talks about his own motivation for living. And he's convinced that uh, this is the right way for all Christians to live. And this means uh, that it's a, a frame of mind that he's going to share. He's going to share the frame of mind. It's a, a way of thinking or, or looking at the world. He's going to share with us a decision-making model. Okay? There are decision-making models in which we run our options through them to decide what's best. Everybody know that, that there's a decision-making model, and a lot of that comes down to what are our priorities. And that, that's the third thing is that what, we're, what Paul is going to talk about here is a, a judge for priorities. We need something to arbiter between what's top priority and what's lesser. We need somebody to judge. We need something to judge what's most important. And uh, it's a compelling motivation. So that's what all of this is about. Let's read our verses from chapter 5 and starting at verse, did I say 3 earlier? 2 Corinthians 5, if I didn't say it. 2 Corinthians 5. And start with me at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Let's just read that again uh, one more time here. For Christ's love compels us, compels us, because we're no, uh, we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all that, you could put so that there, that's what that means, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so 
Christ's actions uh, at the cross has done some things for us. It's dealt with the failure of our past way of living. When Christ died on the cross, he dealt with us, dealt for us, uh, a death blow to our past way of living, a life of sin which ends in misery. We no longer have to live that way anymore because of what Jesus did. The second thing that Christ's action has done on the cross is he's demonstrated the way to live which pleases God. Did Jesus live for himself? What's the answer to that? We can go ahead and say it out loud. It's okay. Did he live for himself? He didn't live for himself. He who was Lord didn't uh, cling to his uh, prerogatives as Lord, but he laid himself down. He made himself nothing. He came as a servant and served others. He died in the place of others. And then... um, and, and that shows us a life of God-centered service. The, the third thing Christ's action does is he has deployed the proper motivation for serving God and others. And that's a life lived with gratitude for his love for us. We, we can love, we can be who God's called us to be because Christ first loved us. Okay? So uh, why did Jesus die? To save sinners, yes, but also to change sinners. Okay? We often uh, short change or shortcut or uh, to we, we end early. What's the proper word for that? Truncate the gospel's work in our lives by cutting short what Christ has died for. He didn't just die so that we could be forgiven sinners. He died so that we could be transformed sinners. And that's this verse is telling us that, that he died so that those who now live can no longer live for themselves or should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. So he died to save sinners, yes, but he also died to save sinners. And that's us, me and you. And this is the explanation of what he's, he's talking about here. So first of all, I'd like you to notice in verse 14, a changed motivation. For Christ's love compels us. Paul is talking from the perspective of his experience with Christ and what, it caused, what causes him to go out and to preach the gospel and to make Jesus known. Why he goes face forward into pain and heartache. Why he lays his own desires aside and follows the desires of Christ. That's what this verse is explaining to us. He's, he's, it's, uh, Second Corinthians is a deeply personal letter in which he's describing what his motivation is. What does the love of Christ mean? He says the love of Christ compels us. He means him personally, but... I think he has a wider scope beyond just himself. I think he's talking about what should be the true motivation for all Christians. What does the love of Christ mean? Love of Christ here means could mean one of two things. It could mean uh, the love that Christ has for us, or it could mean the love of us for Christ. This is called a genitive in the Greek, and it, it means that it could be either way. But but the suggestion of the rest of what's said here, that Christ died for us, suggests that this is Christ's love for us that compels us. Because he's loved us, because he's shown his love to us, we're changed, and it compels us to be a certain way. We uh, remember that verse that says, we love because he first loved us. His love was first. It was preemptive. It changes us. It transforms us, and out of gratitude for what his love means to us, we're different people as a result. Okay, so the phrase, the love of God compels us. What does compel mean? Compel means to exercise continuous control over someone 
or something. His love, in a way, controls us, not in an enslaving way, but in a liberating way. Uh, it can mean to provide the impulse. It, it can actually mean a couple things. It can mean the impulse, providing the impulse for some activity, like a motivation to urge on or impel. You know, impel is to be propelled from the inside, right? Okay, it can mean that. The other thing that it can mean is to hold within bounds, to hold within bounds so as to manage or guide, to direct. So if you want to, uh, and here's a silly example that just comes to mind, but the way that we get that water into our tank back there is that it comes through a pipe. And what that pipe does, it keeps the water from going everywhere. Okay, it's free to flow in a direction, but it has to have some constraints to be effective and go where it needs to go. You understand what I mean by that? And so we've got the uh, we've got the impeller. It's a pump. I don't want to bore you with all the details and take away the spirituality of what's happened just now. But there's a pump that drives that water, and it drives it through a pipe. And so this word that Paul is using for the love of Christ compels us. If you have the KJV, it says constrains or constraineth us, and it has both of those ideas intact. That it both it both motivates and has force to it, so it drives us in a direction, but it also constrains that direction so that we go the direction that we need to go. So Paul is talking about Christ's love is doing this for us. The NAT has controls. Um, the NRSV says it urges us on. KJV constrains. The New American Bible says impels. So maybe it wouldn't be too demeaning to illustrate uh, this way uh, to talk of a trained horse who can stop and go at the master's command. Okay, think of this, that a horse uh, still to some extent can go wild and do its own thing and go off course, but a well-trained horse will follow the master's direction. It must be something like that, you know, uh, in terms of freedom under control. Of course, the analogy breaks down because you don't communicate with a horse the same way God communicates to us, where he appeals to us as his friends. Okay, we would under, I think we would understand that when it comes to uh, a human rider and a horse, that it's a greater talking to a lesser, right, uh, in terms of value and cognitive ability. And, and certainly that's true in, in God's condescension to us. He knows, though, how to speak our language, and he, he sets us on a level in which he says that we are made in the image of God. And so this invitation to follow him and to be compelled by him and to be directed by him is not the the um, hard slave master paradigm, but it's him inviting us into his leadership. And certainly he commands us and we're expected to obey, but it's always for our good, okay? That's, it's always for our good. It's not just that he selfishly is trying to get something out of us. He's compelling us uh, for our good and for his glory. And so I hope you'll recognize that. And so we don't have to have bits and bridles put in our mouths in order to be steered here and there. There's still the freedom of choice that God gives us. He appeals to our reason, and he says, these are the options, will you obey? So he brings dignity to us by letting us maintain our personal freedom to choose, even after you're saved, you still have the freedom to choose or disobey. And I hope if you're baptized today, you realize that the choice still is there to choose to follow God or not to follow God. Choose to follow him, okay? But the love of Christ compels us. And so we looked at, we look at it here, a change of motivation. Paul 
says, I'm motivated because of what I see Christ has done for me. He died for my sins, and he loves me, and that love is returned with gratitude, and that gratitude is going to be a life lived serving him. Okay, so that's the uh, change motivation that happens. What, what other things do we live our lives for? It usually boils down to us living our lives for ourselves. And I think that's what he's dealing with here is that uh, different motivations. And so we have a directional change in life when we come to Jesus, where we turn away from the old way of living for self to living for God. And that is a complete paradigm shift. And it's not always pleasant. And we, although we have the power to make that decision, we still have to undo old habits that want to serve self. And you know, you can still find yourself falling into old grooves, it's true that there's old grooves in the road that we can fall into. And if, you, if you're in Alaska during the wintertime, you know what that means, right? That's a bumpy ride. There's grooves in the road. Do you know, we went to, we went to uh, Turkey, and we went on the Seven Churches of Asia tour there, and we visited Laodicea. And do you know they have chariot grooves cut in the roads there? And it just reminded me of Alaska. We have something similar. We can fall into those old things. It takes intentional steering and obedience to God to live differently. The second thing I want to mention quickly here is change minds. Look at verse 14 again. We are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Paul is talking about something that's going on in his mind, something that ought to go on. Uh, this is what I think he's saying to the Corinthians. He's He's doing one of those things where he's talking about himself, but he's saying, you, you guys really should be doing this too. And he said, we are convinced that one died for all. To, the word for convinced here means to come to a conclusion in the process of thinking and thus to be in a position to make a decision. So you thought through it, okay? Now it's decision time. Anybody face that in life m- multiple times over? You've thought through it, and now it's time for a decision. And you can have all the facts in, and the decision still could be hard, right? So here, at the end of this, we, he's saying, I've thought about all of this. And certainly from a sanctified mind, he's talking about how he's thought through the fact that Jesus died for him and rose again, and what that means for the Christian life. So having processed through all of that, Paul comes to the conclusion that he should live for Christ. The word for convinced here is can be translated concluded, we've concluded, we believe, NLT, uh, KJV, we judge, therefore, something like that. We judge, therefore, so it's the, the conclusion that comes at the end of reasoning through it. And what he's concluded is that one has died for all. Who are we talking about here? Jesus, of course. And what does it mean that he's died for us? This is one of the the ways, like this is the shorthand of the gospel, okay? You know, shorthand, my mom used to take notes shorthand. I always thought it was really weird that these little symbols meant words. And it never occurred to me that the words that we know with letters are symbols. But uh, shorthand, she could write a whole bunch with just a few symbols. This is what Paul is doing, is communicating by shorthand that one died for all. He's telling us the content of the gospel, that Jesus died in our place. He died for the benefit of all or for the sake of all. And Jesus dying was for us. It was not a random act of violence that took place like or mistaken identity. 
uh, he got pulled in at the wrong time and they didn't know what they were doing. Or It wasn't even just meaningless violence. This was intended for the purpose of rectifying the sin problem with us. And while the Jewish people that delivered Jesus to death had uh, an agenda and the Romans had an agenda. I think Pilate's agenda was try to keep the peace, and so he wanted to quell the uprising by doing what would silence them. You know, like when you've got a kid that's throwing a temper tantrum, and some parents just want to concede to that and let it go away. And that's what Pilate's doing. He's conceding to that. So his motivation isn't... I'm sure the devil has a motivation in this. He wants Jesus off the scene. He doesn't want redemption's plan to happen, and so... Maybe he, not knowing all of what this meant was all for killing Jesus. But God had an intention in this. And Jesus had an intention in this, didn't he? He said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down freely. So his whole purpose in this was to redeem us, was for our sake. His death had purpose. As Jesus himself said, he gives his life as a ransom for many. The dying of one benefits all. And so as Jesus, as it says this of him, that one died for all, uh, he bore the penalty of our sins. And what this means is an invitation um, that whosoever will come can receive salvation. Who's the all here? I think Christ died for the sins of the world. And whoever will can come and taste of the waters of life freely given. And so this is the changed mind that Paul has. In light of um, the Corinthian selfishness, he's saying this isn't really how we ought to live, brothers, sisters. This, we ought to live differently than this. Because he died for us, we shouldn't be selfish anymore. Uh, we need to change our mind about what life's about. Is life about consuming? The interesting thing is the most fulfilled lives are not those lives that take in. It's those lives that give out. That's what he's calling them to. He's calling them to a life of service. Finally here, we see a change course. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Notice it says those who live should no longer live for themselves. He died for all, but not all. Uh, are those who live the new life that Christ has given. It's those that have responded to him. So it says those who live, it's talking about those who've turned to Christ in faith, that they should live a different life. And so if you've made that decision, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to me. This is the decision that we've made to follow Christ, and if this is the case, then there's a way we should live. Too often we preach the cheap gospel, come to Jesus and receive forgiveness of sins. True. That's half the story. The other part of the story is sanctification, which means to be made holy and like him. And so he's calling us to that. Those who live, I know this isn't talking about uh, everybody. It's talking about not those who just have biological life. It doesn't use the word live here isn't the word bios. And that sometimes happens in the New Testament, bios. And we would relate that to biological functional life. This is the word zoe. And this is the word that's usually used for spiritual life. So when it says those who live, it's talking about those who have eternal life now. Okay? You know, we're not waiting for eternal life. If you're a believer, you're not waiting till you go to heaven to have eternal life. God's life comes within you now. 
And that's good news for us. So he's saying those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So it's talking about those who have eternal life now. That's its meaning here. Not just bios, but zoe. Not living for self, but living for him is the intention of the truly Christian life. Notice it says here, no longer. Um, if we were just to take a pole straw survey here and ask, how many used to live for yourself? I think all of us would have to raise our hands. And if we didn't raise our hands, we need a serious talking to. And then we need to come and raise our hands after that. Because we've all lived for ourselves. Babies are born in the world crying for the world to pay attention to them. Right? And you have to unlearn that. You have to learn the world is not me-centered. And if you don't learn it at home from your parents, you're going to learn it in the world. And they're not kind about teaching that. But parents can do it in a loving way. This is God's genius design. (laughs) Drop babies into a loving, caring home where they can learn that the world isn't about them. In our modern thinking, we flipped it around. and we We just continue to perpetuate the myth. The world's about you. It's not. You can't be happy with that because you're going to find that it disappoints you at every step when you live that way. I've gone to a different topic. Let's get back on topic here. But, but I think it relates in this because it says here, no longer. No longer. We no longer, those who live no longer live for themselves. The definition of this word for no longer is this. The, the extension of time up to a point, but not beyond. Okay, so we no longer live for ourselves. In other words, there was a time that, that extended up to a point. But then there's the cross, and no longer do we live for ourselves. Sorry, left to right, right? There was a time we lived for ourselves, and then the cross, and then no longer. That time came to an end. Some people need, we need to serve notice to ourselves that that time came to an end. Living for self time is over. We're living for Jesus now. And I'll tell you what, when I lived for myself, I was miserable. And sometimes when I still find myself living for myself, I'm miserable in it. You live for Jesus, there's true fulfillment. So up to a point and no longer. So this is talking about a change of life. The marker of change is the Lordship of Christ. If you've come to believe in Christ, time is up on living for self. So what this is saying, and and the way that this is translated, KJV says, henceforth, so from this point on, um, the Revised English Bible says we should cease from that old way of living, New Jerusalem Bible. Not anymore. Not anymore. Tell the flesh, not anymore. I'm serving notice to you, buddy. You're on restriction. Or... Uh, you're getting your allowance taken away, you know, whatever whatever picture works for you there. But something should change with us when we really come to Christ. The, the seed of the new life has been planted. And in addition to that, a new way of living has been shown to us by Jesus. Okay, the, the contrast is night and day, really. It's observable. You can see the difference between people who are living for themselves and living for God. There's a difference. You can also see that the consequences are enormous. It can affect the people around you. See, we sometimes think it's not going to matter if I live for myself. But it matters to the people around you. 
Because if you've got a bunch of warring tribes that are only looking for themselves, I'm talking about people, okay? You're, you as a person are the warring tribe, and you find, you find yourself competing with some other warring tribe. That's the other person. There's going to be constant conflict. But when you serve God the way that he's told us to in Scripture, we can set self aside and truly love. That we can live differently, and there's consequences to those around us. And there's also consequences within your children and your family. That if you live a selfless life, that, and your kids see that, they're going to see that this is the way we all ought to live. doesn't mean that kids who grow up in a home with selfless parents are going to be unselfish. Sometimes that still happens. But at least you're proclaiming with your life what should be normal. And, you know, your kids, the normal... They think your house is normal, even if it's not. So they're going to go out into the world and find out it's different. But at least if you're going to be their normal, be the very best normal you can be. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about, I'm just talking about in terms of serving God here and doing the best that you can to pass on the traits that are true of biblical Christians. So what does living for yourself look like? What motivates what motivates you? What what's the 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 final umpire for what we do in life? Is it what pleases me or is there some other guide, some other rubric through which we run our decisions, some other model by which we make decisions? And what does it mean to please God? I think when you start asking the question when you're getting ready to make a decision, um, will this decision that I'm trying to choose between which one will please God? I think you're going to get a different outcome than if you ask the question, what will please me? Okay. Sometimes those two line up. Sometimes what you want and what God wants is the same, they're the same thing. And that's wonderful when that happens. But sometimes you find because God has foresight for what's coming and we have a very short-sighted way of looking at the world, what we want in the immediate is not good for us in the long run. Are you with me? But God knows what's best, and so he sees that. And so if we are living by what matters to him in the long run, it's going to come with different consequences and different results in terms of decision-making. What I find is that those who choose to please God, that there's a moment of choice that takes place in their lives, and they have to lay down their idols. And I I think it's probably true that we have to perpetually lay down our idols. John Calvin said that the the heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's always wanting to produce new idols. And uh, what was the, I don't remember the writer of the song, but come thou fount of every blessing. Remember one of the verses says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That there's like this tendency within us to, to dart about in any other direction. Remember the dog on, uh, I think it was the dog on Up, that's always getting distracted by the squirrel that's over there. And I think there's always these things that pop up in life that will steal our attention away, but we have to bear our idols. And so we see it repeated in Scripture. Jacob, when he comes back to the promised land after leaving uh, Laban's house, he and his family come, and they, I believe it's at Shechem, and they, they bury their idols there. And it's like Jacob saying, okay, guys, we put up with foolishness long enough. It's time we get serious about really serving God. 
and not ourselves. And so they bury their idols under a tree. And it's as if he's saying, new start, new direction. We're serving the real God this time forward. Moses uh, constantly calls the people to decision. Deuteronomy is a, a retelling of the law, and he's He's sending the people into the promised land. Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because he had displeased God, and and God was sending them under new leadership. And so as he's getting the people ready to go, they're going into the promised land, but there are pagans in the promised land who have different beliefs. And so he's calling them to make a choice, and he, in Deuteronomy, is challenging them to watch out for idolatry, that these idolatrous things will rise up, and they will change you. And so he's telling them, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that you may live. And all of that is related to them choosing to obey him and not the gods of the people around. Joshua, after Moses, was Joshua. Joshua, at the end of his leadership, says, um, choose today whom you'll serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers beyond the Euphrates, these are ancestral deities. Are you going to go back in time and and re Uh, cling to the old gods that you had forsaken before. And that's a real tendency today. Some people want to go back and say, well, I don't know about the, you know, this Christianity stuff. That's all a product of um, imperialism. And so we want to go back. Do we really want to go back to uh, a Europe that's filled with warring tribes? Do we really want to go back to pre-Christian Uh, times when people were sacrificing their children to an unknown deity. We don't want to do that. And and so he's he's calling them. He's saying to the Israelites, do you want to serve the gods of Euphrates or do you want to serve the gods of the people around you? That's like cultural adaptation. Like what the culture is doing is more important than what I've learned is true of God. And so he calls them to make a decision. And then Joshua says, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's, that's the call, and I think we have to come to that again and again where we're, we're saying, uh, will we serve these gods? Will we serve the God of self, or will we serve the Lord? Paul's call to the Thessalonians. He preached to the Thessalonians, and he reports in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 that they tell, people were telling Paul how you turn from God, uh, turn to God, excuse me, Let's make sure we're clear on that. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom we, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so Old Testament, New Testament, the call to serve God, I think, starts with leaving other gods behind. And that's that means self, too. I don't think probably... Many Americans are going to fall into a trap of um, serving another religious type of God. It'll probably be more of a secular God. And it'll probably be some self-serving religion. And they'll pop up. They're a dime a dozen. They're all over the place. And the call today is, can we stand at the crossroads and ask for the ancient paths and walk in them? So the danger I see is that we can have big allegiance here and say, yes, yes, God, yes, and declare that he is our God and then fail to serve him in the small things, in the little decisions where the consequences don't seem huge. It just seems little like little white lies or, you know, cheating a little bit on our taxes or 
uh, swearing at people, things like that. <laughs> Sorry, I had a more specific thing in mind, but I'm just going to leave it there. How are we serving God there? Or are we uh, serving God in name only, like in Isaiah's day? We, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, Christ died for us. And if one died for us, this is Paul's conclusion, then our living should be for the one. Do you see there's a kind of a symmetry there, isn't there? One died for all, and therefore all who live should live for the one. That's what he's saying. One died for all, and therefore all who really live as a result of that should live for the one. Since Jesus died for us, we should live for him. And this will require a process of unlearning a lifetime of living for self. If you've served others in other ways, you, you may be started in the right direction. F.F. Bruce says in his translation, why did he die for all? It was so that those who are raised to new life in him should not live any more for their own interest, but for his, since he not only died for them, but rose again. So I don't, I don't know that the culture at large will ever rid itself of the idols of our age. I don't know. But I know there's a solution to it. Um, and I think the church has to do a better job of recognizing threats. I think parents have a tough job and an unpopular fight ahead of them. Your parent, that's true of you. I think the church has to live and, and offer real hope and joy that's independent of the idols of our time. And as I said, I'm not suggesting a Luddite movement where we break down all the machinery and go back to primitive civilization, but I'm saying let's rein it in and understand where the boundaries are and live for God. Technology can be used in wonderful ways for God. Do you know that? It's wonderful to be able to send out a text and communicate to a lot of people. It's wonderful to be able to, to say something positive on social media platforms that could be uplifting. But do you know that there's an ugly side? And we need, to, we need to learn where to draw the line. The Bible says we should live differently. Many don't. The most natural conclusion to draw from that is that we haven't really understood the meaning or beauty or power of the coming of Christ. And God's not going to force us to follow him. He's not going to make us follow him. We have to choose. We have to choose to reorient our lives around him. We'll have to agree that we should no longer live for ourselves. We have to set selfishness aside in the little things, the little battles we want to win where we want to fight him for us and turn those over to him. And this is the word of the Lord. What are we going to do with it? Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is really contrary to conventional wisdom. My last paragraph, you can breathe easy. Conventional wisdom is live your life. And so if this seems daunting, what we're talking about, it may be because we're starting to realize the seriousness of faith. It's easy to say, I believe. It's much harder to put our money where our mouth is and to trust that when Jesus says this is the way to live, that he knows what's best and the world doesn't. That's where the conflict is because I think there's a lot of Christians out there who are swallowing up worldly philosophy while the name of Jesus is still on their lips. And that's tragic. To say we trust and believe in Jesus, that he died for our sins is one thing, it's another thing 
to live for him. That's what we call real belief. It's risking uh, that he's right and conventional wisdom's wrong. So who are you going to believe and what are we going to do about it? Amen. That's the message today. Why don't we stand? Let's take a few moments to let the Lord speak to us. If you've never come to trust in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you today. You might be sensing God's Spirit is speaking to your heart. And I want to tell you, Jesus died for our sins. So he took our punishment upon himself. And so because he's done that, God uh, wants to forgive us. He wants to bring us into relationship with himself. And we can. Today, if we'll trust in him, he'll give us new life. He'll give us that Zoe. Not just biological existence where we eat our meals and do what natural bodies do and then die. But real life, real life, that's what he's calling us to. If you would like to trust him today, just simply say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, because of Jesus. Begin to trust in him. And I would encourage you, if you're praying a prayer like that, to talk to somebody here about it. Let them know that you're wanting to follow Christ. And we as a church can help you and walk with you through that. But it starts with a recognition that we failed We've lived in selfish ways. We've hurt other people. We've hurt ourselves. But most of all, we've sinned against God. And so, Holy Spirit, we just ask you to speak to our hearts today and show us our true condition. There are many believers across this room you may be wanting to tell that a change needs to happen. If you've made a commitment to follow Jesus already, And you're recognizing the Holy Spirit is saying to you, man, you've lived selfishly. It's not following this perfectly, or you're not following it the way that you should. And I think it's appropriate for us to say to the Lord today, forgive me for my selfishness, Lord, and help me to really live for you. To invite the Holy Spirit to show you every time you're acting selfishly. I know what I'm asking you to do doesn't sound like a pleasant thought. It's going to interrupt your agenda. But this may be the very thing that sets us on the course to really pleasing him. And so that's a call to serious Christianity today. Not easy Christianity, real following of Jesus. These uh, altars are open. If you'd like to come and kneel and spend a few moments in prayer with the Lord, maybe today needs to be a day of dedication where we say to him, Today, from this moment forward, remember, no longer, (laughs) no longer, up to this time, but from this time forward, I want to be different. A prayer like that today could really change the course of your life for Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.